Our scripture reading this morning is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 to 33, reading from the English Standard Version. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he calls grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. This is God's word. We are there in Lamentations chapter 3, kind of picking up where we left off last week. Um, If you are are not familiar navigating through your Bible, if you want to find Lamentations, just go to the middle and hang a right. It's probably about 40, 50 pages that way. Or you can pick up a Bible out of the pew and turn to page 688, and that'll get you there too. So uh, we'd love to have you follow along with us and, uh, and be in the text with us. I know a lot of you are using electronic devices and so forth, um, but, uh, but, but put your eyes on the text. I just can't tell you how important that is. Uh, as you are hearing the Word of God, as you're hearing teachers of the Word of God, uh, put your eyes on the text uh, because uh, it just it sinks in and it becomes so much more. Uh, you know, last week's text, I got to tell you, that was a really fun text to preach. Um, some texts, are, are, they just have their own energy built in. And they just, you sort of start and it's a little bit like, uh, any of you ever do soapbox derbies? You know, the car up at the top, you just kind of move the little thing out of the way and it takes off. You just, you know, that was kind of that kind of tech. You just move the thing out of the way and it takes off. You know, when we get to celebrate the character of God and his very good, uh, his goodness, his mercy and his grace. And, and we talked about the fact that his, his love is, is such a loyal love that's based on and, and manifested right through his promises and the irrevocable covenants that he's made with us. His mercy being an endless mercy and, and new every morning. Um, you know, when you got up this morning, God knew precisely what you needed. He knew precisely what it would take to get you through the day, and he's giving that to you. And you have what you need. His mercies are new every morning. We celebrated his great faithfulness to his people, to us. I got to tell you, when I preached, when I initially planned, rather, to, to preach that text last week, I, I thought it was a one and done. I thought I was preaching that week, and then it was going to be a long time, and then plans changed. And uh, right before last week, I found out I was actually going to be preaching both Sundays, and I knew that I needed to just keep going in that text. I knew that's what the Lord wanted me to do, that he wanted me to preach the next section of that text. Um, but i got to be honest, it's not as much fun as, as last week's text was. Um, but it's every bit as important. It's every bit as much something we need to allow to sink into our heart and become a part of the way we think 
you know, I suppose when you're in a, when you're in a little series, kind of a, a, a loosely organized series like we're in right now, where last week we talked about a posture of looking back. This week we're talking about a, a posture of really looking around at where we are, where God has us. Next week we'll be talking about looking forward. But as we look back and recount the faithfulness and the mercies of God, that's a lot of fun because, like we said, you, they're always there. If you honestly look, if you're willing to honestly look and assess and take things in the context of biblical principles, God's mercies, God's goodness is always evident in the midst of it. Looking ahead, well, that can be exciting too because, you know, as we look ahead, I believe God has some amazingly great things in store for us. I, I hope you'll join me in, in dreaming gospel-driven dreams. Gospel-driven dreams, dreams about what happens when the gospel is known and communicated and fully implemented and we're fully invested in the gospel. What does that look like? And how powerful is that? But to get there, we have to start where we are. And to do that, we need to know where we are. To do that, we've got to look around. When we look around, we need to pay attention. And as we continue in Lamentations 3, where we left off last week, it gets pretty sober. And it gets pretty, um, pretty uh, in our face just a little bit. It's still about the character of God. It always is. But in light of that, now he begins to, to, ask, to give us some demonstration of what appropriate responses to that are and how do we operate within that. And it's not always things that are easy to hear, but what are the appropriate responses? But this becomes an excellent exhortation to be fully present in the present so God can present his perfect present. All right, that's, that only works on, on the screen. All right, all right, Look, put that up there. I mean, I worked on that. Come on, people, you know. This is, why, this is why the English language is so hard, you know? I mean, that, you know, be fully present in the present so God can present his perfect present. And that's, that's what we want from him. We want from him that all that he has for us, exactly what he has for us, because it's perfect. It's exactly what we need. So what does it mean to be completely present right now, right here in this season, while we wait before the Lord, while we earnestly Seek his will, desperate to get it right, to glorify him. Now, some of this may apply and some of it may not. You know the old, the old saying, if the shoe fits, wear it. But I'm pretty sure there's at least a good flip-flop's worth here for most all of us. If we're really honest and we really take to heart, uh, there's something for us in this text. Verse 25 to 27 is the exhortations. And then verse 28 to 30 gives some descriptions. And then 31 to 33 some limitations. And if we start back in 22, you know, we think back to 22 where Jeremiah was exalting the Lord, and then in 24 he proclaims, The Lord is my portion. He, will, uh, that he says, I'm going to hope in him. And now he gives us three goods to ponder that the Lord is good. He's going to put a particular context around that, that waiting quietly is good, that bearing the yoke is good. In verse 25, he says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Good here is, is a comprehensive good, 
Now, let's face it. There is no context in which God is not good. There is no context where the goodness of God is not true, where it's not manifest, where it's not real. It speaks not just to his character, but it speaks to the nature of his will and his purposes that are they're driven by that character and that flow out of his good character. But this goodness of the Lord, obviously good all the time, all circumstances, all situation, but it's especially manifest to the one who wakes and seeks him. Now let's talk about waiting. Waiting is not a passive term. Waiting is not something that we do passively. It's not sitting around and twiddling our thumbs. When we talk about waiting on the Lord in the Scripture, the idea is not that we would just do nothing unless God has specifically put us in a place of doing nothing. I had a friend in college. He would always say, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord, brother, to to fund my school bill and to provide the money while he played pool in the student center all day. And and I said, you know, you see that board behind you with all those job opportunities listed on it? Maybe the Lord wants you to wait over there by that board a little bit closer (laughs) and and, and grab a job. But um, to wait on the Lord is active. It's not passive. Waiting on the Lord is an active thing that we do. Now, the Lord may tell us, and you're going to see that in a second, he may tell us to be quiet and still, but even in that there is a an, an proactiveness, there is an intentionality to that where we are focusing on what God wants of us and has for us in that moment. So it's an active thing, faithfully serving where he has us to wait on the Lord. We may be very busy while we're waiting, serving where he has us. So often people will go into idleness because they feel like God has something more for them, and indeed he may. But the reality is he wants us active, serving, being his, his vessel exactly where we are. You may be in a job that you know this is not the job for you ultimately, and you're waiting on the Lord to, to guide you somewhere else, to take you somewhere else, to show you something else. But while you're waiting, be faithful where you are. You may be in a ministry. You may be in any number of things. A family situation could be going on. A relationship could be going on. And you know God has some different or something more for you. But be active. Be intentional where you are while God has you there. That is just as much the idea of waiting on the Lord. Earnestly seeking Him. Look what it says. Being in prayer. Being in meditation. In the Word. Fasting. Those are activities. Those are places where we are being faithful where God has put us. Our very soul, our being, earnestly seeking him with everything in us. What better posture could we take in a time of transition? What better posture could we take when we're looking and we're waiting? We're wanting to see what God has for us. To wait in faith, to seek him in prayer. And to allow him to demonstrate and show us all that he has for us. Now, verse 26, it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So the second good is is waiting quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Not just waiting, but waiting quietly. And waiting for something specific. Now, quiet here does not mean silent. What it really means, and one translation even translates it this way, is to wait without quarreling with God. That's hard to do, isn't it? 
Sometimes it's hard to wait. When we're ready to go, when we're ready for change, when we're wanting something to, to happen immediately, to wait without quarreling with God. And we can quarrel with God overtly, just going right to God and saying, God, I'm really mad about what you're doing here and express that to him. We can also quarrel with God covertly, telling our friends about how upset we are with God. And he hears that, okay? Just let you know, he eavesdrops. He, he hears when we do that. So we can quarrel with him overtly and covertly. Let me clarify something, though, before we go any further. I want to clarify the difference um, when we talk about complaining, that there's a difference between lamenting and complaining. And we need to understand the difference in those. We are in the book of Lamentations, after all. If you read outside the borders of the text that we've been in, you may say, well, it seems like there's some, some complaining going on. There's a difference between lamenting and complaining. A lament usually contains a complaint, but it's a complaint that is stated as, as part of a process to understanding, to resolution, to seeking what God wants, what God is saying. Resolution, understanding, the purposes and the will of God. It's not decreeing on his character. It's not taking our allowing circumstances and situations to tell us what God is like. Remember, we say God is good in every circumstance. Our tendency sometimes is to say, and we can get in big trouble, when we see something happen that makes no sense to us. And we ask that question, and it's an honest question, and probably most of us have asked it at one time or another, how could a good God do such and such? How could God love me or love that person or love that group of people and allow these things to happen to them? Now, that's a legitimate question. Here's the problem. The problem is when we allow the answer to that question to be what determines our theology about God. And if we look at that and we say, well, no, God's not good because that happened. No good person, no good being could do that. So apparently God is actually not good. Rather than saying that was a horrible thing, but I know that God is good because that's what the scriptures tell me. Now, I've got some work to do to reconcile these things. I've got some work to do to understand how these things come together. But even though a lament usually contains a complaint, biblical lament also involves resolution. It's expressing frustration, sadness, dismay, maybe even anger. But it's with a view of understanding what God is up to with a heart that desires to submit to what God is up to. And seeking to understand it, seeking to express our heart in it, but not with a rebellion in that heart. Where a, lamenter, where a lamenter comes to understand the heart of God and yields his will to God's purpose. There's a, there's a great book. I don't know if any of the ladies are here today that are involved in, our, uh, in the um, trauma healing ministry. Um, we've got several ladies here that, that help to lead that. And um, they didn't know I was going to say this, but I want to put a little plug in for it because it's, it's very, very helpful. And one of the things they teach in there is the idea of a lament. And 
The person that wrote some of the curriculum for that, one of the books that are used within that, is a lady named Harriet Hill, and, and she said this, Laments allow a person to fully express their grief and even accuse God sometimes, but this is often followed by a statement of trust in God. We go through that moment of doubt, but, but then, it, then it resolves in that sense of trust. This combination makes for very powerful prayers. The grief is not hidden but the person does not stay in their grief. They call on God and express their faith in Him. The laments encourage people to be honest with God, to speak the truth about their feelings and doubts. In the lament, people don't attempt to solve the problem themselves, but they cry to God for help. They look to God, not the enemy, as the one ultimately in control of the situation. They ask God to take action to bring justice rather than taking action themselves or cursing the enemy. That's the difference in a lament and a complaint. A biblical lament has a resolution. A biblical lament affirms the goodness of God. In a lament, the lamenter almost always affirms God's faithfulness, asserts their trust in God, and at least acquiesces to the plan and the will of God. A complaint is an attempt by the complainer to express in his frustration, sadness, dismay, even anger, with a view of making sure God and others understand their position, understand what they want as a resolution to this. And it usually includes their plan for setting things right. And they cry out to God, if they do at all, for satisfaction, not submission. That's the difference in a lament and a complaint. In short... A lament's acknowledging sadness and hurt. It's important to do that. Even frustration, even anger, with a mindset, though, of discovering and yielding to God's will and purpose in the midst of that. A complaint is acknowledging sadness and hurt, even anger and frustration, but with a mindset of affecting change so things are done to our liking. And there's a big difference talks about, in verse 26, he talks about salvation. And that salvation there is not really the salvation of the soul from sin. It's really talking about deliverance from our distress. It's good because waiting in silence, it's, it's, it's in a sense a holy duty that ultimately brings us comfort and satisfaction. Listen, folks, that wait can be long and difficult sometimes. I wish it was always quick. You know, so many times people will say, you know, I've, I've been waiting on the Lord. And I was like, how long have you been waiting? And it's really not that long in the big picture of things. I remember Francis Chan did an illustration one time that was the most, it really got my attention. He, had, he was up on a stage and all over the stage was a rope. And the rope just, I mean, it, it went, I don't know how long the rope was, but it went all over the place. They must have spent hours weaving that rope through the beams and through, and there's just rope everywhere. And eventually the end of the rope disappeared off stage. And then he took the end of that rope and he said, you know, this rope, man, this is, this is your existence. It has a beginning, but it, it doesn't end goes on for eternity. It just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. Miles and miles and miles of it. And he took that rope and, and he dipped it in a little bit of ink to where just the tip of the rope turned blue. He said, and that's your earthly life. And it really got my attention. 
I realize that there is so much, and really all of our life here on this earth is just a little bit of it. It's just a little bit of our existence. Verse 27 brings the third good to mind. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now, there's a lot of difference of opinion about exactly what this means, really about what the yoke means, about what youth bearing the yoke means. Um, but it says that it's good to bear it, and it's good to bear it for a man to bear it in his youth. How we understand this is really going to inform the next three verses, so it's important that we come to an understanding of it. Some believe that this is a yoke of punishment, that the yoke that he's talking about is a yoke that was placed on them for their sin, for their rebelliousness against God, and it was a yoke that for a season was placed on them, that they earned it. It was a direct result of rebellion of the nation. And it was a yoke to be born really at the hand of the, of the Babylonians. And that logically speaking, if you've got to bear that yoke it's of, of slavery, of bondage, it's probably easier to do that at 20 than it is at 80. And so it was basically saying that it's good for those who, um, who bear the yoke when they're young and, and not in their older years. I don't think that's what he's talking about. There's also the yoke that... that it's a yoke that only the young have to bear. It's the yoke of youth. And I don't think that's what he's talking about either. What I think he's saying here is it's referring to a yoke that we all bear. It's a yoke that we all bear. It's maybe the yoke like Jesus talks about in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And if that's it, then what does the young have to do with it? I think that is it. I think it's a warning passage really to us in many ways. A warning passage primarily to the young. Let me explain. It makes the next three verses make sense. We all bear the yoke. We all bear a yoke of service. We all bear a yoke of God's commands upon us, of the yoke of consecration to the Lord, of service and allegiance to God. So why does he even mention youth? Let me tell you something. If you're under 35, especially, listen to this. The earlier you begin to bear the yoke, the earlier it becomes a part of who you are. And the less awkward and the less non-fitting that yoke will be. See, preaching is, is not the thing I love the most. What I love the most is sitting down with people and kind of talking and walking through life together. And figuring out, uh, how does this apply to this? How, how does God's word apply to life? And sitting down with people that, that have come to a point where they're like, man, I want to I serve the Lord. I, I want to... I want to follow him. But so often, at that point, there's so much baggage. And there is so much to deal with. But sitting with someone who honestly wants to bear the yoke of this relationship with God, but refused it for a long time, and now it's hard, and, and the baggage has built up, and, and obstacles have become entrenched in a lot of ways, and habits and besetting sins have much become a part of life. 
Now listen, it's never too late. It's never too late to begin to, to, to put that yoke on and to begin to bear that yoke. But I think there's a warning here. And that warning is saying that it is good to bear the yoke in your youth because the longer you wait, the harder it will be to do it. The more difficult it will be. I cannot tell you how many people have said, well, I'm going to have my fun now. Later on, you know what? Later on becomes a whole lot more complicated than you think it's going to be. If you know anybody who struggles with addiction, if you know anybody who struggles with besetting sins and, and habits that they just don't seem to be able to break, then you know, and you understand that. You understand that if early in life, if in youth, you, you apply that yoke, you allow God in his gentleness to lay that yoke on you, it goes on easy. And it's easier to wear. It's not always simple, but it's easier to wear. That is why it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth rather than waiting. Now, verses 28 to 30, they're a little bit strange to modern-day Westerners. To an ancient Eastern culture, they, they would have made a lot more sense. We need to look at this from the standpoint of principle, not practice. What's the spirit of it? Not necessarily the specific behavior in it. It's a description of how one might bear the yoke, of what does bearing the yoke look like. He says, verse 28, let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. To sit alone with the yoke uh, is, is to resist the temptation to, to run about gathering sympathies when God places a yoke on us. To run about gathering the truth when there's something we don't like, when there's something difficult in our life, when things are not how we want them to be, to practice the, the way of a complainer rather than a lamentor, and, and, and seek to, to rally, the, rally the sympathies and the troops and to gather those around us that will, will feed us and see it our way. And we've never had a better platform for that than we have with social media today. You don't even need to leave your recliner to rally the troops. You don't even need your recliner to, to gather the sympathies rather than to sit alone and further to sit in silence. And again, silence doesn't mean without a sound in this sense of what, the way it is used here, but it's to manifest an acceptance of God's will. Again, to not complain. It doesn't preclude lament. It doesn't preclude crying out to God. It doesn't preclude seeking godly counsel but it does preclude complaining. As we wait on the Lord, as we bear the yoke, Jesus has told us his yoke's not overbearing. It's hard sometimes. It's difficult sometimes. Anybody that tells you that the Christian life will always be easier, that following God will always be easy and will not have hard decisions and hard instances is not being honest with you. But to sit alone in silence is to demonstrate tangibly an unwavering acceptance of the will of God, no matter how difficult it may be, and refuse to complain to man when God's will doesn't suit our preferences. Verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Again, we don't really have a cultural parallel for this. I'm certainly no scholar on ancient Hebrew customs and traditions. However, I can Google. And so, <laughs> there were degrees 
of understand, there were degrees of demonstrating, rather, submission. There was something as simple as just placing your hand over your mouth. That, that was a form of demonstrating submission. There was bowing. There was prostrating on the ground. And then there was literally putting your lips in the dust, laying face down in the dust. Jeremiah's calling here for the highest form, the highest manifestation of surrender and submission, a posture from which you are incapable of raising an argument. Put your lips in the dust and try to argue. Doesn't work very well. Most absolute of surrenders to the yoke of service of God that one could possibly imagine. And he says there may yet be hope. Really acknowledges where that, where that yoke is coming from and whose yoke that is. When, when, there's always hope when the yoke is from the one who loves you unconditionally and who loves you loyally never calls us to bear the yoke alone. He is always a part of that. There's always hope, no matter how heavy that load may seem. Verse 30, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. It's sounding more fun all the time, isn't it? But didn't Jesus give us that command too? It's really not that odd. The whole thing's really pretty common. Jesus told us to turn the other cheek. Peter tells us in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, for to this you've been called, as Christ suffered also for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Listen to this. There's only one way you can do that. He continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You know, we all have things we have to submit to. Submission is never about trusting the one we submit to in the human terms. Submission is always about trusting God. Submission is always about saying, God, if I submit to this person that you've put in my life, be it a parent, be it a husband, whoever it may be, be it a boss, if I submit, will I be okay? It's not about trusting them. It's about trusting God. Always has been, always will be. Always about trusting him. God, are you big enough to take care of me? God, if I do this, if you got my back, some ways it can seem untenable, it can seem unreasonable. But let's put this all together as we close. We're not going to have time to talk about the last three verses. We put this all together. Remember, before he gave us this, he reminded us that God's steadfast love never ceases. Before he told us about this part, he told us that his mercies were unending and his love was unending. And before he gave us this exhortation, he let us know and he reminded us that every morning, whatever we need for that day is going to be there. That his faithfulness is great. And when you woke up this morning, he knew exactly what you needed for today and you have it. Right after this, he talks about limitations. Verse 31, I'll just read it. We we'll don't have time to really talk about it. For the Lord will not cast off forever the time limit. But though he calls grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There's a load limit. He's not going to give us so much that he cannot hold us up in it. He doesn't willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. 
He's not out to get us. He's not out to break us just for the sake of watching us squirm. He wants us to bear the yoke. He wants us to accept his will and to accept it graciously and with a genuine submission. But he also wants us to know that he's got this, that he's got us, that we're not alone and we're not desperate. Father God, we are grateful that though our life can be difficult and though sometimes we cry out in lament, Father, don't let us be a complaining people. Let us be honest that in our sorrow and our sadness, even in our frustrations and our anger, let us cry out to you seeking your plan, your will, not driving it to ours, not insisting that it be our way, but lamenting before you as need be, but trusting you through it all. Father, that is the only way that we can live in this day, right here in this present time. And the only way that we can face the future is when we know that you are sovereign and you are in control and the yoke that you place on us is not overwhelming. And you will bear it along with us. In Jesus' name.